0: CHAPTERS 47 AND 48 OF TAKEN AT THE FLOOD BY MARY ELIZABETH Braddon. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. 47. THE FAULTS OF LOVE BY LOVE ARE JUSTIFIED. Was Edmund Stanton happy? He tried to believe that his lot was life's consummate felicity. He was prosperous, successful as a man of business, appreciated by directors and shareholders the master spirit of the monkhampton branch of the western union bank his home was pleasant his womankind worshipped him he was betrothed to a woman he admired and respected who loved him with devotion and whose handsome income would do much to swell the sum of his own prosperity he ought to have been happy he had youth health independence the knowledge that work need not for him be the monotonous toil of a lifetime but only the congenial employment of his prime to be given up at any hour should it prove wearisome to him he knew that the bulk of his father's fortune was now securely his own for his mother had shown him her last will in which she left ellen sargent only the savings of her widowhood and all the rest to her son i am not likely ever to alter this will edmund or to threaten you with loss of fortune said mrs Standon, who was enraptured with the present condition of affairs she would fain have hurried on the marriage but she found esther averse from haste and edmund somewhat indifferent after all mother he said if esther likes a long engagement why should we worry her to give up her fancy we are very happy as we are if you are happy edmund that is all i care for and i am not afraid that esther will change her mind thus things went on with every appearance of general satisfaction i ought to be completely happy edmund said to himself more often than a man who was really happy would have made the remark indeed happiness has so subtle a flavor that we rarely recognize the taste of that wine of life while yet it lingers on our lips it is afterwards we look back and say we were happy few among us talk of happiness in the present tense edmund found that his present content lacked the charm of that brief period of delight in which he had been sylvia's lover He tried to recall the old day-dream of a happy home, only changing the central figure, the same bright picture of the domestic hearth, but with a difference in the wife who sat beside it. Vain endeavour. He found that the picture would not compose as well as of old. It had even lost the old glow and colour. He shut his eyes upon the outer world, and tried to lose himself in the dreams of future happiness, but the dreams would not come so mr stanton became more than ever devoted to business worked longer hours at his desk made himself hateful to his subordinates by his unflagging attention to every detail and went home of an evening too tired sometimes for the twilight walks which were so sweet to esther Rochdale, too tired even to take part in his favourite duets glad to sit in the easy-chair opposite his mother's while esther sang or played to him she did both with exquisite expression and often brought the tears to her lover's eyes but the tears he shed were not for her. They were weak, regretful tears for one he knew to be unworthy of them. Vainly did he struggle against regrets which he felt to be both weak and wicked. This struggle was at its height when Lady Perryham's letter was handed to him one morning among his business letters at the bank. Sylvia had been too prudent to direct her epistle to Dean House. The letter was brief Perryham Place, Wednesday. Dear Mr. Standon, i have a communication to make to you which i think you ought to hear i dare not ask you to call upon me lest you should compromise yourself and me by such a visit will you therefore meet me to-morrow evening at nine o'clock in parium churchyard yours faithfully sylvia parium. this seemed cool and business-like the letter of a woman who had forgotten there had been so tender a tie between her and the man to whom she wrote Edmund twisted the small sheet of perfumed paper between his fingers for a long time, pondering on that strange appeal. Should he grant this audacious request, knowing as he too well knew the weakness of his own heart? His first answer to that request was a forcible negative. He would not go. Then came afterthoughts which are apt to be fatal. Would she have written to him thus if she had not had strong reasons for sending him such a letter? what communication could she make to him there was but one secret he would care to hear from those lips and to hear that now would be worse than futile she would tell him perhaps that the infidelity which had gone very near to break his heart had been no willing act of hers that influences stronger than he could imagine or believe had forced her to that unwomanly falsehood that her father's greed and not her own ambition had made her the wife of sir Aubrey she might tell him all this but to what avail could she stand blameless in his sight she would be no nearer to him than she was now for he was the affianced husband of Esther Rochdale. it was just possible however that she did not seek this meeting in order to extenuate her sin against him she might have some pressing need of his help he knew that she was friendless he was a man of business he had once loved her to whom would she be more likely to appeal than to him i should be a craven if i refused to grant her request he said to himself and wrote two or three lines in answer to lady pariam's letter promising to be in the churchyard at the hour she named this reply was no sooner posted than Edmund standen began to repent having written it he thought how bad a look such a secret meeting would have in esther's eye should some unlucky hazard bring it to her knowledge and people who live in villages are set round with spies should he write another letter recalling his promise he debated that point all the afternoon but did not write any such letter as the day grew later a guilty feeling crept over him until he shrank from the idea of seeing esther rochdale and his mother before he had kept his appointment with lady periam he ordered his dinner from a tavern and stayed at the bank after office hours looking into accounts and writing business letters stayed there till the monkhampton clocks chimed the quarter before eight from the bank to Parium was about an hour's walk. Mr. standon gave himself a quarter of an hour's margin, but instead of walking at a leisurely pace and keeping himself cool as he intended, he walked his fastest, walked himself almost into a fever, and entered the little lane leading to Parium Church at half-past eight, having done the distance in three-quarters of an hour. He had nothing to do for the next half-hour but smoke a cigar or two, stroll in and out among the moss-grown old gravestones, muse like the meditative hervey on life's mutability and regret his own foolishness in having allowed lady perium to entrap him into this evening rendezvous bitterly did he think of his false love as that long half-hour wore on and yet he yearned for her coming and at the first sound of a light footfall on the terrace above him felt his heart beating just as it used to beat in summer evenings gone by when he had waited for his mistress under the chestnut-tree the same fervour the same impatience the same passion as of old although he was esther rochdale's promised husband the light step came along the terrace and he saw a black-robed figure pause by a low iron gate open it and then descend a little flight of steps to a gate opening into the churchyard the moon was at the full and sylvia's beauty had a phantasmal look in that soft silver light as she came slowly towards him slender and shadowy in her flowing black dress Only the face shining out from that sombre drapery, ivory pale. This is very good of you, she said falteringly, holding out her little ungloved hand with a doubtful gesture. Hard to keep the leash upon passion. He had intended to be cold as ice, unimpressionable as a family lawyer. But he took the tremulous hand in his and held it in as tender a clasp as when he had deemed this girl all innocence and truth. Good of me, he said i suppose you knew you had only to beckon and i should come but before you say one word to me let me tell you what as an honest man i am bound to tell i come here as miss rochdale's affianced husband i knew that when i wrote to you answered lady pariam her eyes fixed upon his face fever bright but steadfast i knew that you could only come here as miss rochdale's engaged lover but before you married i thought it right you should know the truth about me i know quite enough lady Perriam," answered edmund letting go the little hand and putting on that armour of coldness which he had meant to wear from the first i know that you jilted me in order to marry my superior in wealth and position do i need to know any more yes you need to know why i did it answered sylvia in a voice that thrilled him its ringing tone sounded like truth passion has a truth of its own-the truth of the moment a woman has a thousand good reasons for every wrong she does returned edmund i am content to know that i was wronged without investigating causes the effect was all sufficient do you think it was for my own sake i married sir aubrey certainly since you were the person to benefit by such an alliance can you imagine that i who loved you so dearly would have deserted you unless i had been compelled to that act by an overpowering necessity what necessity should compel you save your own ambition you had shown me often enough your horror of poverty you shrank from the future i offered you which must have begun with a struggle for maintenance it was not enough for you that i was hopeful it was not enough that i promised to work for you sir aubrey could give you wealth and splendour in the present and you chose sir aubrey i chose sir aubrey because my mother was starving in a garret in london and to marry him was my only hope of maintaining her you were brave you were ready to begin life without a penny and to work for me if i burdened you with myself blighted your prospects lost you your inheritance could i also burden you with the support of my mother yet i must do that or let her starve if i married you for my mother's sake i sacrificed my own happiness and married sir albry Edmund gazed at her for some moments in sheer bewilderment. Her looks and tones were full of truthfulness. Earnestness so thrilling could hardly be false. He believed her in spite of himself. How was it that I never heard of your mother or heard of her only as one who had long been dead? You told me that you had never seen her face, that she died while you were an infant. So I believed until the night after the school feast, answered Sylvia, and then briefly— yet with a graphic force that conjured up the scene before his wondering eyes she told him of that night visit the penitent mother depicted that mother's misery but affected a deeper pity than she had ever felt for it and touched the listener's compassionate heart she described their parting how the broken-hearted mother had kissed and blessed her and how she had promised to help and befriend the penitent were it at the cost of her own happiness within a week of that parting sir aubrey asked me to marry him I remembered my promise to my mother. I knew that if I married him it would be easy to keep my promise. If I married you, almost impossible. I thought how unfortunate our marriage would be for you, how great a sacrifice it was to cost you, and I prayed God for strength of mind to renounce you and marry the rich old man who could give me power to rescue my mother from a life of unmitigated wretchedness. Was I so utterly contemptible as you seem to have thought me, Edmund? contemptible cried edmund no sylvia not contemptible but mistaken fatally mistaken i would have toiled for your mother as willingly as for you worked for her ungrudgingly and whether our home were rich or poor she should have shared it you do not know what you are saying edmund my mother was not one you could have acknowledged without some touch of shame she had been a sinner and had repented i would not have been ashamed of her penitence She should have lived with us in peace and security, and none should have dared to question her past life. "'Oh!' exclaimed Sylvia with a cry of despair. "'If I had but known you could be so generous!' "'You had no right to question my generosity, or my humanity. "'This was a case for common humanity rather than generosity. "'Do you think I would have let my wife's mother starve?' "'You might have found life so hard, Edmund.' i would have fought the battle if it had been ever so hard i would have kept sheep in australia if i had failed to earn our bread in england sylvia was silent that picture of australian sheep farming though noble enough in the abstract had no fascination for her yet as circumstances had shaped themselves she would gladly have been an immigrant's hard-working helpmeet rather than the thing she was i have told you all the truth edmund she said after a pause in which they had both seemed lost in thought edmund leaning upon the rusty railings of a tomb his face hidden from lady periam as if he feared to let her see the workings of a countenance which might have revealed too much of the mind's fierce struggle i have told you all she repeated can you forgive me i have nothing to forgive you did what you deemed was right i can only regret that you had not greater confidence in my affection and in my power to help those i love i hope that you secured your own happiness by an act which nearly wrecked mine my own happiness she echoed drearily do you think it was for my happiness to forsake you do you think i was all falsehood when we parted that day in headingham churchyard no answer he stands like a rock looking straight before him with a cold steady gaze ordering his heart to be still that heart whose passionate beating belies his outward calm have you ever doubted my love for you edmund asks sylvia stung by this merciless calm no more than i doubted that the summer roses bloomed that year and withered he answers your love died with them it never died it filled my heart when i deserted you yes when i stood before god's altar with sir aubrey perriam it was you i saw standing at my side it was to you i uttered my vows it was you i swore to love and honour and obey the rest was all a bad dream still silence a pause during which sylvia feels as if her heart were slowly congealing then came a question asked in low level tones as if it were the most commonplace inquiry was this the communication you had to make lady periam yes what else should i have to say to you yes i sent for you to tell you this you shall not give esther rochdale your heart without knowing the secret of mine i never ceased to love you i was never really false to you i flung away my own peace for the sake of a desolate despairing creature who had but one being in all the world from whom to hope for succour and now i am free once more free and rich and true to you will you forget all your old vows the deathless love you have so often told me about will you forsake me to marry that prim pattern of provincial perfection miss rochdale spare your sneers against my future wife lady periam yes i am going to marry miss rochdale and if i am not as happy with her as i once hoped to be with you it will be my folly and no missing grace or charm in my wife that will be to blame which means that you do not care for her cried sylvia oh edmund i know how contemptible i must appear in your eyes to-night even more despicable than when i seemed to be false to you i know what a hideous offence against conventionality i have committed that i have almost shut myself out from the ranks of virtuous women by this self-sought meeting despise me as much as you please edmund i know full well how deep a shame i have brought upon myself by this reckless act but i can bear even that mary esther rochdale yes you are right she is worthy of you she is good pure true all things that i am not marry her and forget me i am content now that you know the truth blot me from your memory edmund forever if you like but if you do remember me think at least that i was not utterly base and now leave me and go back to miss rochdale she stretched out her arm with a gesture of dismissal till this moment edmund had stood by the ivy-wreathed railings of the parium tomb fixed immovable sturdily battling with that demon of weak and foolish love which bade him cast truth honour loyalty to the winds and clasp his false idol to his breast but now as she retreated from him slowly in the moonlight a phantom-like figure gliding out of his reach the old folly mastered him the passion he had never conquered once more enslaved him he stretched out his arms three eager steps brought him to her side and once again she was held to his heart held as if never more to be set free leave you forget you go back to another woman no sylvia you know i cannot do that you knew that when you lured me here to-night you would have me at your feet i have come back to your net you have called me back you would have it so for good or evil i am dishonoured perjured weakest and worst among men but i am yours and yours only forty eight sylvia triumphs after that meeting in the moonlit churchyard edmund standen went home humiliated remorseful and as completely miserable as he had ever been in his life there was no sense of triumph in the thought that sylvia was once more his own but a sense of deepest shame the joy of possession was extinguished in the agony of self-abasement his jewel the treasure of his life the only object he had ever ardently desired was restored to him but at a price that made the gift worthless not long did he linger in parium churchyard after that fatal avowal of weakness he kissed the pale forehead the sweet red lips as he had been wont to kiss them in days of old looked into the depths of those luminous eyes and tried to pierce the soul that gave them light and then tore himself away with but a brief farewell He would have seen Sylvia safe within her own door ere he left her, but this she forbade. Of the future neither spoke. She was more than content. Her heart swelled with secret triumph, for she had made her lover's marriage with Esther Rochdale an impossibility. After tonight's avowal he dare not fulfil his engagement to Miss Rochdale. Henceforward he belonged to her, Sylvia Periam she did not therefore murmur at a leave-taking which seemed sudden constrained and hurried she knew he was sorry for what he had done that late repentance mattered little he had done it safe in the solitude of her room she gave herself up to the full rapture of triumph she laughed softly to herself as she brushed her long bright hair before the large oval mirror in the dressing-room which she had made a glistening temple of feminine luxury what a victory she had won over her arch-enemy, Mrs. standon How changed her position since that stately dowager had paid her a visit of condescension and conciliation to the village schoolhouse! Will she come here to pay me another visit, when she is told that Edmund is going to marry me after all? wondered Sylvia. I think not. She will hardly attempt to patronise Lady Periam. Of Esther Rochdale's wounded or perhaps broken heart, Sylvia thought not at all. Other people's broken hearts had never been a source of anguish to her. Besides, she had always detested Miss Rochdale. She had hated her for being richer than herself. She had hated her still more for being better, purer, and truer than herself. She rang for her maid. She had her own maid now, and told her to fetch Mrs. Carter. She was in a mood to confide in somebody, and there was no one else to whom she could unbosom herself mrs carter came promptly in answer to that unwanted summons she closed the door behind her carefully and drew near sylvia's chair are you better darling she asked softly better i am well is your patient asleep yes he has been asleep since nine o'clock he sleeps well doesn't he asked sylvia very well yes thank heaven his nights are all peace and his days said sylvia with a vexed look i should think they must be peaceful enough too you give him all he wants all he can ever ask for i do my best to make him comfortable and even humour his caprices as far as possible but in spite of that well what asked sylvia impatiently as mrs carter paused playing nervously with the ribbon of her neat little black silk apron she was peculiarly neat and precise in her dress at all times a person never to be seen at a disadvantage the quiet pauses of her monotonous life gave ample leisure for this scrupulous neatness in spite of all my care he is sometimes very miserable she said sylvia shrugged her shoulders and turned away with an impatient movement i suppose it is in the nature of his malady to be miserable she answered coldly i don't think it is altogether that what does he want then a little more liberty lady Perriam turned upon the speaker angrily I forbid you ever to speak of him again, she said. Do your duty, you are paid for that and paid lavishly. But don't come whining to me and talking of his being unhappy, as if my interests were the last thing you cared about. Is that a fair thing to say, Sylvia, after what I have done for you? You undo it every time you speak of it. A favor is no favor when it is flung in one's face. How often do you fling your bounties in my face? retorted the mother bitterly why did you send for me to-night if it was only to be unkind i didn't mean to be unkind but you provoked me by speaking of a subject i hate indeed sylvia it was you who questioned me you should have some tact i may have asked a simple question but i did not invite reproaches or lamentations mrs carter looked at lady pariam with that half sorrowful half wondering expression which often marked her countenance she was thinking of the strange resemblance in character between father and daughter in each the same absorbing self-love in each the same indifference to the woes of others lady periam recovered her temper and poured the story of her triumph into her mother's ear it was not from any natural affection for that mother whom she had since her widowhood condescended to acknowledge in the seclusion of her own rooms though to the little world of parian place sylvia's mother seemed no more than the hired sick-nurse it was from no impulse of filial love but only from a desire to talk to some one to have some sympathetic ear to listen to the triumph of woman's art over man's honour it was not till i pretended to give him up that i brought him to my feet she said after telling her story till then he was rock i told him to go back to esther rochdale he saw me melting from his sight and in the next moment i was in his arms and he was as much my own as when we parted by the tomb of the De debossonies it was a happy thought to make him meet me in the churchyard the scene brought back all the old feelings and now he is mine once more my edmund and i am rich enough to laugh at mrs standon's petty fortune we will be married as soon as my year of widowhood is over and he will come and lighten up this gloomy old house with his presence i shall feel no more fear when he is by my side let the worst come it will be his business to protect me mrs carter looked at her earnestly for some moments and then knelt down by her chair and clasped her hands and looked into her eyes with passionate appeal oh sylvia she cried why did god give you all good things except heart and conscience it tortures me to hear you talk like this I would rather see you grovelling in the dust, anguish-stricken, than hear you speak of happiness, and count upon a prosperous future, knowing what I know! End of Chapters forty seven and forty eight.